Welcome to the Rockin' Life podcast, Rockin' Life After Divorce. And today we have uh, Mike Martins. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. This is uh, so much fun. I usually say it's like being a detective, being doing these interviews. I love it. I've done it a little over a year now. And the podcast is really to bring hope to people that are going through divorce, that are struggling. I know myself, I struggled through divorce for several years, started six years ago. And it's definitely one of the most difficult things I've ever gone through in my whole life. That's why I want to bring hope to people. And you're a father of two amazing teenage girls. I have teenage girls myself, and uh, you're actively involved politically, and uh, you're an avid outdoor enthusiast, spending summers in mountain biking and the winter skiing in amazing Canadian Rockies. And uh, I have so much in common with you. It's like I grew up in Sweden, I grew up on my skis, I love mountain biking, love the outdoors, and I actually have some relatives up in Calgary, so it's pretty cool. We have a lot of things in common. And uh, it's going to be so much fun to, to hear your story. Stories are what connect us and uh, the listeners. And you had a little story about your divorce that you're going to share a little bit about. Yeah, thank you for having me on your show and sharing with your listeners. Yeah, a real turning point for me was at a critical moment in the divorce proceedings where we were negotiating terms. And we were not agreeing. And the lawyers were costing a lot of money. There was a lot of antagonism. There were some difficult words going back and forth, a lot of mistrust. And in that moment, I had a choice. Was I going to keep fighting for what I saw as my interests and kind of I win, she loses, and it's a zero-sum game? Or was I going to fight my pessimistic instincts and try to be optimistic and trust in the goodness of my ex? and hope for a better future and take a different approach. And I'm so glad that that moment, I believe it was almost divine inspiration that came and opened up the possibility of choosing a different path. And I chose a different path and it really set the foundation to really an amazing future that I'm currently living. That is so awesome. You know, we're gonna hear a little bit more about this later on in the podcast and uh, to hear your story. But first, we're going to hear a little bit more about how did you end up in the situation you are going through divorce? For me, it was the most difficult thing in my whole life. And I had loneliness, depression, suicidal thoughts, and it took a couple of years. I was married for 20 years and uh, it was really, really rough. Now, did you have to deal with anything like that yourself? Yeah, for sure. I was married for 12 years and it was five years in the marriage when my now X said to me, I'm done, but we've got two young kids. So maybe we should do, make some more effort here instead of just shutting this thing down. And so we started going to counseling. We did counseling for seven years. Wow. And that those counseling appointments were really the start of a opening of my mind and my heart to new ways of being, new thoughts, but it was torture. It was just I remember crying through a lot of those sessions, just feeling attacked. I could do nothing wrong. I was the evil guy. A lot of that was horrible. But I have to admit, at the end of those seven years, not that the final separation and divorce was easy, but we had done a lot of work building up to that time and creating a strong foundation and making new choices possible. The way of living that I had created in my life. I got married late in life. I was 32 when I got married. And I had 
made choices and developed a way of living to that point that were not serving me. It was making me miserable and selfish, unhealthy, and just generally an unhappy person to be with. And I had to change who I was. I had to change my foundation. And those seven years, I'm so thankful for. Not that I would ever wish divorce upon anybody or a bad marriage, but without that, I would not be who I am today. And even my ex recently told me, he goes, you have changed so much. You're an incredible person. And there's an unspoken there. What if you could have been that person when we were still married? (laughs) Yeah. But you know, that's past us. And we're both very happy in our lives right now. She's done amazing. We have a very good relationship. Even this morning before our podcast, we talked through some really tough issues and we could talk it through. And there was respect and concern and genuine listening. And like she often says, what if we could have done this in our marriage? And it's, well, we're doing it now. And that's all that matters. That's nice to hear because there's so many relationships and divorces that end up with a lot of strife. And I know how difficult it can be when you can't get along, when you can't communicate, you can't co-parent in a good way. And very uplifting to hear that, that you could break through and be able to communicate and having a good, good communication with your ex-wife for, for both you and, but especially for your kids' uh, sake. Divorce can be a catalyst for you to turn your life around. I totally believe that. It was for me. Uh, it was the most difficult thing I've ever gone through. But then also I decided early on both to get help get a counselor and get a coach and a mentor. And that was a turning point for me to be able to examine me and my flaws and to be able to change the way uh, I acted, you know, also to be able to be open and transparent. I tended to be closed up and not sharing and not being and like a lot of men out there. They, they, uh, we have a hard time sometimes to share our emotions. And to be able to start opening up and being me instead of trying to pretend to be somebody I'm not, like having these fake facades up, uh, having a nice house, having a nice car, uh, pretending in church that you have a good relationship when you don't, etc. And uh, I'd love to hear more about your transition there from, you said those seven years were uh, kind of like an, maybe an awakening or, or some kind of uh, trying to, to figure life out. Yeah, for I really liked how you talked about the you know the choice we face these struggles and realizing we can become new people. What you described there is something that I learned in a book called Falling Upward by Richard Rohr. And in that book, he talks about the first and the second half of life. And the first half of life, we build up our ego. That's the house, the career, the title, how we look to other people, what other people think about us. And I love what he says about that because he says that's important. That's an important stage to go through and you need to go through it well. And if you've done it well and you've created a healthy ego, you will still have to transition to the second half of life. And that is the dying of the self or the releasing of the ego. You have to have an ego to release though. And, and so that transition to the second half of life, most of it happens through some crisis. And for many people, that crisis is divorce and it forces us to question everything we've done up to that point. Why did I value all these things? You know, I wanted a good marriage. I wanted a family. I wanted passion and intimacy and excitement and love, 
And yet everything I did resulted in the exact opposite. How is that possible? And we start questioning the emptiness of things like material possessions. Not that there's anything wrong with a boat, nothing wrong with a nice house. But if that's your source of identity and security, you're in a load of problems when it comes to relationships because they are antithetical to those things. Just having those things are the exact things that prevent intimacy and vulnerability and all the things that bring out joy and passion. And so that was, that was my lesson there was, uh, well, my upbringing though is my problem, my particular problem, why it took seven years to transition for me to the second half of life. My upbringing, I don't know if anybody knows anything about Mennonites, but it's, it's a culture of anti-materialism. So buying material things is looked down upon, you know, you don't do anything showy. It's a very humble existence, but culturally, the values of the culture are humility, serving others, you know, definitely you'd never fight or argue, no bad words. But part of that was a lack of authenticity in that culture. There isn't the ability to be angry or passionate or excited or enjoy life. Yes, wine is great. Why not have some wine? No, no alcohol. Dancing is great. No, no dancing. You know, no joy, no happiness. But it was kind of a false, that becomes an ego all in itself. It's a false modesty. And I think I had had a false modesty so that when I encountered my struggles in my marriage, it was hard for me to transition to the second half of life when I hadn't formed my ego properly. So that was something I learned is that you have to love yourself. You have to be passionately excited about yourself and all the great things inside yourself. I was not. I thought I was horrible. I was. I thought I was unattractive. I thought I was dumb and not particularly competent at anything. And I didn't have an ego. And so I didn't have an ego to lose, or I did have an ego, but that ego was worthlessness. And so I think there are the cocky guys out there actually have a better starting place than I had because they have a strong ego, but they're going to have to lose it if they want a good relationship. Yeah. And they're going to have to put their ego in place and understand that having a good ego is good, but it can't dominate your life. It can't be the thing that's making your choices. Now, I have a question related to that. I was very much into outward appearance, wanting to please people, wanting to uh, have other people like me, uh, having uh, a nice car, having a nice house. And uh, you said something about having all the focus on material things like a lot of people do. How is that destroying relationships? Yeah, well, I mean, superficially. So we'll go deep in a moment, but just on the surface. I think a lot of people are under financial stress. Yeah. They're under financial stress because they're trying to keep up appearances with their neighbors and trying to keep up with everybody else. And that financial stress, we know from the statistics, is one of the major killers of relationships. Hey, a guy's working 40, 50, 60, 80 hours a week to have all these things. And, you know, status might tell him, I will, you know, it's a status symbol for me, for my wife not to have to work. They wouldn't say it that way. They might say something like, our family values are that my wife should stay home and work. Well, that's fine. But then you shouldn't have expect to have the material resources of families that have both people working. Yeah. I but like you that. Do, but you still do. Yeah. So that's, and that's the superficial reason. If we want to go deeper, what's really going on there is what ego is, is how can I look good to others rather than how can I be authentic? Oh, I love that. 
I was forced into becoming authentic. I went through loneliness. I was so lonely and depressed throughout the divorce in the beginning for this is six years ago. But my counselor said, reach out to a few people and share what you're going through. But that was very difficult for me because I had so much shame about it. But she said, you need to do that. So I started sharing my story. And this is with two, three people that I trusted. And that started the journey of me becoming me, becoming authentic and real. I would never before share my inner struggles. It's such an amazing journey that I went through. And now I don't have a problem talking about these things. And I have amazing friends. I never had close male friends prior to this that I could talk about my difficulties. Now I had two, three really, really close friends. And it's a mutual sharing. You know, they have a a very, very close friend. We we play golf every other week. We we get on the phone, chat every week, at least once. And just just hang, hang out. I think it's very crucial for men to have guy friends, like in a marriage. I had friends before, but they kind of like dissipated. It was so busy with life, with work, with everything around being married and having kids. So a lot of those relationships disappeared. Yeah. I really like how you connected the notion of authenticity with being real about suffering. Yeah, And it's not that we need to be miserable people where everything's wrong all the time, but if we're not doing well, we should be free to be able to say, I'm not doing well. Yeah, But in an ego culture, that's not acceptable. And I don't want to judge people who are happy all the time and everything's going right. I, I think that's lovely. I have to admit my natural instinct is to question whether or not that's authentic. <laughs> but I know that in my background, my culture emphasized false piety, false humility. Where, you know, everybody's woe is me. And it was almost a it was almost a race to the bottom in terms of misery. And that's false too. And there, there's, I think the happiness movement has seen that, hey, let's be grateful for the amazing things that are in our lives. Let's celebrate those things. We don't need to emphasize the bad stuff, but conversely, we shouldn't hide the bad stuff either. If there's no shame, then you can just say, yeah, I'm having a bad day today. And I'm telling you because I'm committed to having a better day. Yeah. I like that. One person that both of us know, and it's actually how we got in contact with each other, is Daniel at Divorced Over 40. And the title of his podcast is Keeping Up with the Joneses Destroyed Our Marriage. And uh, it was a question I was going to ask you. Uh, Maybe you already answered this question, but uh, what do you think is preventing people from having great relationships? I mean, there's a number of things, but to me, the root for me, and so I see this everywhere else I go, is if we don't have a good relationship with ourselves and loving ourselves as we are, then it becomes really difficult to accept other people for who they are. And that's what an authentic relationship is. And so if you have perfectionist instincts or if you have ego instincts about who you should be, you're going to apply that to somebody else and they're not going to feel loved. They're going to feel like they've constantly, constantly have to keep up in order to satisfy your love. And that's the recipe for disaster. So becoming authentic with ourselves, I like to say it this way, we are limited in our ability to love others to the extent we love ourselves. Yeah. So if you want a good relationship with somebody else, you need to start loving yourself for all your faults and you need to get rid of that shame 
And Brene Brown does such a good job of differentiating guilt and shame. Guilt is the feeling you have for having done something wrong. Shame is taking that action and turning it into an identity where you like, yes, I stole something. I should not have done that, but I am not a thief. It is not in my nature to constantly be stealing something and and taking things away from other people. That was a one bad action. I'm bad. I'm going to make recompense for that because I'm not a thief. I'm a good person. I got lots to contribute to society. And for each of us to learn what is it that we're contributing to others and what are we proud of ourselves for and leaning into that rather than, oh, I did this wrong and I have this regret. And that becomes an identity. I'm a victim. I'm the bad guy. I'm whatever. And you've got all these things or I'll never be enough or I'm not worthy. All of these lines are are narratives in our head that somebody else gave to us that we're repeating over and over. And we've got to start choosing to feed a different narrative. Or like I say, feed a different wolf. There's a wonderful indigenous story of, of two wolves, a black wolf and a white wolf. And I don't want to say that one's better than the other, but they represent different things. And if you feed the black wolf, it will grow. Yeah. If you feed the white wolf, it will grow. And metaphorically, which is the wolf you want to grow in your life? And if you feed the narrative that you aren't worthy or you're a bad person or you're not lovable or you're a jerk or all of these kind of things, well, you're feeding that. Stop feeding it. Start loving yourself for the good things. I am compassionate. There is a good life waiting out there for me. I can change. I can't grow. And if you feed that wolf, that is the reality that will occur. Yeah. Why is loving ourselves so difficult? And uh, what can we do to learn to love ourselves? I know myself, it was a process and it was going through a divorce where I started to have to deal with it. What do you think? Yeah. Well, there's a great book out there by Nicole LaPera. Her Instagram post is The Holistic Psychologist. and She has a book out called Doing the Work. And that is the answer. This is not easy. Uh, for anybody who knows anything about how the brain minds, we know about neural pathways. And the narratives we tell ourselves are neural pathways. They're like etchings in a stone. And when we're under stress, there's like water is released and the water will take the least path of resistance. And our brain has these deep etchings in it. And so when we're under stress, we're going to have natural ways of being. It's going to be natural for us to say, oh, there I go again. I've done something wrong. I'm no good. That's natural. You've got to do the work at creating new neural pathways. And that's like digging etchings in stone. And it's a repeated pattern. It's creating routines and habits where you create it so that one day when the pressure comes, the water will flow a new way. And that becomes who your new being is your new character. You can shape that and form that, but it takes work doing the work. And that work is going back into the past or as the famous song, digging in the dirt, finding the places we got hurt. I'm trying to remember the name of the uh, author from Jennifer, the writer from Genesis there, not sure, Peter Gabriel, you know, digging in the dirt, finding the places we got hurt, go back in the past and heal yourself. And you can do that I discovered this great passage where it said becoming an adult for a man, and this is probably true for women too, but I, I don't have that experience. But for men, becoming an adult means learning how to be our own father. And that doesn't mean that we hate our fathers. We just recognize they had limits and that we can love ourselves and we can take on that role of being that big brother or father figure to ourselves and having our own backs. 
And so that's going back in the past, finding the places we got hurt, whether it's our father, mother, or other parental figures, or early breakups, early hurts, and letting the walls down. And that takes work. That's a painful, painful process. Yeah. And so that is what it takes to love ourselves. It is work. And when you get used to that work, you will be developing new muscles. And the, yes, they're in your brain and in your heart and in your gut and your body, but they are muscles that are weak right now. And so it's going to be painful, just like starting a new exercise. Yes. And that's where the real man up is, do the work. Yeah, I usually say that it takes action and courage to start this journey, but to do it on a daily basis. Myself, I have a background in finance. And when you have compounding interest, it, it's not linear, it's uh, exponential. And the same thing for me, I did not see the process when I started this journey. And that was very difficult. But when you have a coach or a mentor can help you see that process. Yeah. And initially I felt like I was in a rowboat in the middle of the ocean and you don't see the horizon. And when you're rowing, you don't see the progress. Yeah. And uh, it wasn't until like a couple of years later that I started seeing the progress. And now I see it five years later, I see this amazing progress I've had. It's so difficult and it can be very depressive to see that you're, t you're taking these steps, but you don't see the process yourself. And I think that's one of the keys uh, to have a coach or a mentor that can be there along for that journey, especially initially a first period. I think that's crucial. You know, you mentioned progress. I think part of the, as I was talking before, about the second, first and second halves of life and the first half of life, progresses are usually measured in terms of endpoints. Once I make $100,000 a year, then I'll be happy. Once I get a house, then I'll be happy. Once I get this car, I'll be happy. Once I get this, and, and you get there and then you're not happy and you keep going for more. In the second half of life, progress is more about process. It's once I become a certain kind of person, then I, that's the progress is becoming rather than doing. It's being. And that change, I think, is a change in notion. For instance, the metaphor you use is one I like too, is being in the water. I used to say with my counselor, and I really believe, strong believer in therapy, and I had a great counselor. And I said, she goes, how are you doing? I said, I feel like I'm treading water and I'm barely keeping my head above the waves. Yeah. And she goes, oh, Mike, that's so sad. I said, why? I said, I'm keeping my head above the weight. And she goes, well, that's one metaphor, but do you believe you aren't moving at all? Like treading water, you're kind of sitting still. Do you believe you're not moving at all? She said. And I said, well, no, I'm moving. Well, then you're not treading water. You're swimming. Yeah. And that's all the difference is the stories we tell ourselves and seeing the good, you're right. I am moving. And maybe that's the goal. It's just that I'm moving. I'm not staying still. And then we had another metaphor later on again. This is, well, I'm kind of waiting for the port to arrive. She was, Mike, there is no port. And even if you do, you might visit there for a little while and then you'll be on somewhere else and you'll be going and an island will come out of nowhere and you'll be surprised. And that's the joy of the second half of life. There aren't specific goals. It's a journey of constant surprises and being a strong enough person that you can withstand the negative surprises and you can celebrate and be excited about the exciting surprises. But it's a life full of surprise and wonder. To me, that's the life worth living rather than the controlled life of knowing that I'm going to make a million dollars and I'm going to retire. I'm going to be exactly here. And this is exciting. We have 2.7 children and this is the car. Screw that. That's no. boring. 
I want to lead a life of surprise and adventure. And for me, that doesn't necessarily mean risking financially. I'm kind of risk averse, which is something you could probably coach me on. (laughs) It's holding me back financially. But man, emotionally and relationally, I have a deep, rich life that I'm excited about. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome to hear. This, this is really cool. So going back to uh, initially in the divorce, you mentioned it was something that was kind of like a turning point for you in the divorce proceedings. What was that? And how did that contribute to you having this very good relationship with your ex-wife? Yeah, it was a powerful moment. We had been negotiating our divorce settlement for almost two years at this point, And there were some critical issues that needed to be hammered out, just one or two issues. And we had received some really bad advice. We hired way, lawyers that were way out of our price range. It was costing us an exorbitant amount of money. And so we went into a meeting hoping that the, if the four of us, me, my ex, both of our respective lawyers got together, we could resolve this quickly. And at the beginning of that meeting, my ex said, I haven't shared this with my lawyer yet, Mike, but I have this idea. What if we just renegotiate our terms every year rather than locking into an agreement for the rest of our obligation towards one another, whether that's five, seven, or 15 years? And that's all part of the debate too, is how long are you obligated to support one another? And at that point, she hadn't been uh, making a lot of money and I had been the primary provider for the family financially anyway. And both lawyers said, no, this is a bad idea. Let's not do it. And I listened to them. And roughly two, two and a half hours later, thousands of dollars going out the window and lawyer fees, we'd gotten nowhere further. In fact, we'd moved apart. I like giving the analogy that it was like negotiating for a home where somebody puts a home up on the market and asks $400,000. Somebody comes in and offers three eighty, and they return around and say, yep, four twenty. That's the way our negotiation, we were getting further and further apart. We weren't coming together. And in that moment, I had a brainwave. Something came over me and I like to call it divine intervention because I cannot explain it. It doesn't fit where I had been the previous two years. It doesn't explain those two and a half hours. And I asked to speak to my lawyer and I said to my lawyer, why did you advise me against taking my now ex's proposal to renegotiate every year? And my lawyer said to me, well, you asked me to find a solution that was stable so that you didn't have variability. I'm going, but we're at the bottom here financially. Yes, it's going to be stable, but it's going to be horrible. (laughs) At least with her proposal, if she's still open to it, at least there's room for something better in the future. And that was the opening of this idea that it's a faith commitment to believe your future can be better because there's lots of evidence around us to say things could be worse. And we all have had bad things in our life, but there's also good things around us. There is evidence for things improving too. Which wolf are you going to feed? And at that moment, that inspiration said, I'm going to choose optimism. And so I went back into that meeting and I said, Jody, would you be willing to revisit that offer you made at the beginning? And her lawyer was like, no, 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 it's off the table. And she put her foot down. I was really proud of her. Because to that point, her lawyer had really been driving the ship that was making me upset. And at that point, Jody said, yeah, sure, let's revisit. But why would you do that? I mean, the spousal support and all that would would be crippling for you. And I said, yeah, but you are smart, you are hardworking, you are talented, and you want the best for our kids. And for both of us to be contributing financially, take them on great trips and make sure they have voice lessons, all that kind of stuff. We need more money. 
And I believe you are capable of it and you're going to do it. I'm going to put my bet on you that you're going to pull out and you're going to do great work and, and you're going to provide all those things. for them. So yeah, right now it's going to hurt me, but I'm betting on you. And she cried. And so did I. It was a powerful moment of giving her trust. This person who uh, had contributed to the downfall, I had as well. But, you know, in your marriage, you tend to blame the other person. And to that point, maybe I blamed her disproportionately. And I knew I had some things. But this person who had caused me pain, I was choosing to put my trust in and believe in her goodness and her desire, at least for the kids, if nothing else. Yeah. And here we are years later, it's we're six years after our separation. She makes more money than I do and she pays me child support. Wow. <laughs> and I'm responsible to deal with that money responsibly, uh, make sure that I'm using to spend on the kids. But that faith has paid off many times and it's the basis for us having tough conversations this day. We can have conversations now where I remember one time she even said, you know, what would our marriage have been like if we could have had these conversations back in our marriage? We're both happy in our lives right now, and she's in another relationship, and we're good with where we're at. But it's fascinating to think, you know, we've grown and changed so much, and for the better, both of us. Yeah, yeah it's crucial to be able to have that uh, communication with your ex-spouse for the kid's sake, where you have that, you know, what I understand, you have a good relationship with her still, and uh, this particular instance contributed enormously to that. I don't have a good relationship with my ex. I wish I had it, but I want to learn. And that's part of why I want to interview people to kind of like learn and be this detective, what worked for you and what worked for somebody else. And to be uh, willing to negotiate in a divorce decree is crucial. And I, I totally believe that divorce lawyers, and I've said this so many times, they contribute to the opposite a lot of times because they are not for a good uh, separation. They're uh, just taking one party in consideration. In the US, I don't know if you have it in Canada, but they have something called uh, collaborative divorce, uh, where you actually have lawyers that are, you know, they're trained in collaborative divorce yeah. to work together. They have mental therapists and coaches. So it's a big process initially, but the cost of the divorce most time is much less, but initially upfront cost is more, but it's going to be you have much bigger chance of a good process. Actually, I've only been, so our process was collaborative, quote unquote, collaborative. I didn't find it authentic. Lawyers, regardless of the process they're going through, are obligated through law and through their professional standards to defend the interests of their client. Yeah. And so I thought by entering a collaborative process, I told my lawyer, I said, I don't want what I deserve. I don't want my rights. Yeah. I want what's fair. Yeah. And I need your experience of 20 years of going through this, of saying, Mike, you're asking for too much. No, I needed somebody to tell me that where I was being unreasonable. But lawyers, by their own professional uh, standards, aren't allowed to do that. Uh, so well. I don't actually believe in the collaborative process with lawyers. Yeah. Because lawyers are bound by their own regulations to not be collaborative. In fact, the legal profession is bound in the first half of life. That is what the first half of life it is. It's fight for my rights. I think this is a huge cultural problem right now where everybody's talking about their rights. Yeah. Where the whole notion of human rights was 
premised on fighting for the rights of others, for the oppressed, for the poor, for the weak, for the vulnerable. That's what the whole point of human rights are. It's not for me and my privileged state to fight for more. It's for me and my privileged state to fight for others to get more. And that's the difference between the first and the second half of life. Ego, me and my center and, and everything I deserve versus what do you deserve and how can I help you grow and expand? That's the first and second half of life. So, no, I don't think the legal path, but the key to that happening because the first half of life is natural. It's genetic, I like to say. That's the survival instinct. I must survive. That's the first half of life. The second half of life is about thriving and not worried about my survival anymore. And not making survival the core. Of course, you're still going to not let yourself be killed. But it's not the driving force. It's going to say, you know what? I believe there is a good future out there for me. And that is the thing that calms down the part of the brain, sometimes called the lizard brain or the amygdala, that's that fight or fight response, survival instinct. We have to calm that response down. That's one of the voices in our head that I teach my clients. Let's calm that amygdala down. You are not under threat. You're not going to die. It's going to be okay. Not only that, if you can calm that down, you can open your mind to seeing new possibilities for an amazing, vibrant life with new relationships that surprises joy, but you have to calm that survival state down, calm the threat down. And to do that, you have to believe. And that was for me, that was my big hurdle to transition from the first to the second half of life. And to have a good divorce was for me to believe that there is a good future out there and put my faith in somebody else, put my faith in my ex, that she's going to do the right thing. I mean, initially in my divorce, I was actually quite fearful. My ex-wife filed for divorce and because of the way it was filed with accusations, etc., I became very defensive and I hired a, a very vicious lawyer that uh, I regret afterwards. I did not know the way he was, but I fired him three weeks later. That just escalates everything and it's just yeah. the only winners are the lawyers. I have a very good example. This is... Uh, sharing something about Daniel's podcast. I think the way he dealt with it was beautiful. He said right away to his ex-wife or his wife at the time that he wanted to work out the finances because she was told by other people, you need to hire a lawyer. You need to make sure that you get your stuff. She was very fearful because she was a homemaker. She wasn't making any money and uh, he was making all the money. But uh, Daniel wanted to have a good resolution. So uh, he said, why don't we just meet up over coffee and we'll just write down everything on a piece of paper and make sure that we're both okay. And he could have gotten a much better deal if he wanted to, legally. But uh, he wanted to help her get on their way. Uh, and uh, they just uh, wrote everything down, took uh, two hours, and then uh, they went to a lawyer and had a lawyer write up uh, the divorce decree and he was done. I admire people who can do that. I have some friends who did something like that as well. This was my journey and that was Daniel's journey. And that's not going to apply to people who have businesses, for instance. It's incredibly complicated. What's the value oh, yeah. of the business? And where are the investments? I, I recognize there's very complicating circumstances. My encouragement for everybody is it's not the procedures. It's not the tactics. It's not whether you use a lawyer or not, or collaborative or not, or, or all this kind of stuff. It's the attitude of your heart and your mind going out. Do you believe there is a good future? Is it coming out of love for yourself and others? 
Or are you in a state of fear and anxiety and self-protection, self-preservation? If you're in that latter one, it's probably not going to resolve very well. No, I, I think it's very important to talk about it because uh, when you end up in divorce, a lot of people are not, they, I didn't know anything about divorce. I didn't know how to deal with it legally, etc. And uh, all the fear that a lot of times goes through. And I think it's important to talk about it, to bring awareness, what can go wrong if you, if you make certain decisions. So I think yeah. it's, it's a very healthy uh, discussion that we're talking about. I don't think we've talked about it prior in the, the podcast about uh, collaborative divorce regarding uh, and different types of divorce, how, how you can deal with it. You mentioned to me that you were a recovering pessimist. And uh, I thought that was interesting. I myself have always been very optimistic, but share a little bit more about what is a recovering pessimist and how, how did that affect your relationship? Yeah, I think, you know, where did my pessimism start? You know, I think for me, like with everybody else, bad stuff happened in my life. And, and things, I got hurt and I got dumped or I got embarrassed or I got disappointment or whatever it was. And my way of protecting myself was anticipating the bad and preparing for it. Kind of like if you see you're going off a roller coaster and you tighten up into a ball and close your eyes. Okay, that's one way of doing a roller coaster, I guess, but you're missing the joy. And so I missed the joy in life because everything I did was out of protecting myself or thinking curling up into a little ball. That pessimism was that for me. And it enabled me to be right. Pessimists are almost always right because there's bad stuff. <laughs> Easy to be right. But man, was I miserable. And I was unhappy. And I just saw bad stuff happening around me all the time. I think I became prideful in that because I felt like, oh, yeah, that's never going to work out. And then it wouldn't work out. I'm going, yeah, see, I'm smart. And that became a form of an ego identity myself, just being, I'm the smart guy who knows when things are going to go wrong. And I can see how every situation is going to go wrong. It became very analytical, but it turned off the joy. It turned off surprise. It turned off spontaneity. It turned off emotions and it turned off all those wonderful things. And I could see now in retrospect, and as I was going through my marriage, I saw, wow, that pessimism. That desire to be right about the wrong things in the world, <laughs> all the bad things in the world, actually created the reality of my worst fear. My worst fear was being in an unloving marriage where I got divorced. Okay. And my pessimism, I feel, was the biggest thing that contributed to that reality happening. Oh, wow. So I created my own reality. My pessimism, by being worried about the worst thing, well, you know, I'm not going to get the good job or that girl doesn't want to date me or whatever, or people always get divorced. Well, guess what? That's what happened. And if you assume the bad's going to happen, you're going to see that. Yeah. Because that's the evidence. It's a lens you put on that causes you to see all the bad stuff around you. Yeah. And what I try and do for myself and for those I love and for clients is to open, take that lens off and open their eyes because there is good all around you. There is people who love you. So whenever you're alone, you don't necessarily have to be lonely. You can recognize that there are people who love you. You can recognize there's good things around you. At the most superficial level, this isn't superficial, but at the most superficial level, nature wants you to grow and thrive just like it wants all plants to grow and animals to grow and thrive. You can say nature loves you. If you're religious, you can say God loves you and wants you to grow and thrive. 
If you have kids, they want you to be the best you can be. You've probably got friends and others who are cheering for you. There is good around you that you can grab on. And so that's what a recovering pessimist is, is taking the lens off of seeing all the bad in the world. And to do that, I don't watch the news anymore, even though my life has really been in politics. and I have to watch the news for my job a little bit. So it's really hard being an optimist in politics, by the way. But so part of that is shutting the news off and not bringing toxic stuff into my life. And that doesn't mean I avoid the pain of others. Pain of others is not toxic. The toxic stuff is constant news sources, social media that bombard us with only the bad stuff in the world without all the amazing good things that are happening. And I don't want to be ignorant of the bad stuff that's happening, but I don't need to bombard myself with it. Yeah. And part of that is speaking positively and encouraging others. You know, when when somebody's having a bad day, we can empathize with them as we should. Hey, that sucks. That's horrible. How can I help you grow through this? And opening the door to positivity, opening the door to opportunity and growth and happiness and joy. Let's just put on a different set of lenses so we see the good around us. And that's what a recovering pessimist is. Somebody who has to choose optimism on a daily basis because it's not an ingrained neural pathway in my brain yet. And it's not something that I have etched that I naturally think about. I have to choose it every day. And that's what doing the work is all about creating those new neural pathways, those neural pathways of optimism and hope and joy and not, and feeding that wolf rather than feeding the wolf of negativity, and pessimism, and everything's bad and everything's going to be horrible. Bad things will happen. That doesn't mean we need to dwell on them. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, one of the best ways to actually go through and help yourself is to help others. I have relatives that dealt with alcohol problems and been through the 12-step program. And uh, this 12th step is to start helping others. I think it's one of the most powerful ways to heal yourself. When you're in the middle of a divorce, you're you're depressed, you're down, you're lonely, to reach out the hand and, and start helping others can actually be one of the most powerful things to heal yourself and get out of yourself. The last question I always ask is that if you can uh, visualize the listeners here right now and uh, they've just entered into this divorced process. It's a, it's a man, he's uh, 45 years old, he has kids and he currently just went through the divorce. A lot of strife, a lot of difficulty. He has a lot of bad thoughts, sitting at home, being lonely. What would you tell this guy or girl? The, the first thing we need to do is acknowledge that this is a really tough situation. This is one of the toughest things anybody goes through. We need to just sit in that and be okay and just say, hey, this is tough. I think some people feel like, you know, how did I get here? What did I do? And this isn't fair. This is right. So it's just going, you know what? This is happening. Let's be present in the reality that this is a bad thing. So first of all, we need to acknowledge and validate that this is a tough situation and that, yes, you might have contributed to part of it, but not all of it. And the solution also lies with you too. And that's the second part is transitioning to there is a good future. And I'll be the first to admit, especially as an intrinsic pessimist, that's a faith statement. That doesn't come easy for me to believe. And so I would encourage people to find the faith within them. If you belong to a faith community or something like that, find the faith resources you need to believe in a positive future. Yes, things are tough right now, but nothing lasts forever. 
And that accounts for good things and bad things. No bad thing lasts forever. So the pain you're going through right now will not last. I promise you it will not last. That's empirically verifiable. (laughs) And so you can relax and know that this is not your currency. This is not hell. It won't last forever. Secondly, when you get a good moment, that too won't last forever. So get as much as you can out of it. When a good moment happens, enjoy it, celebrate it, sink into it and look for the good. See the good that is around you and use that as a basis, as an energy engine to get you through the bad times. So that's my starting place. Acknowledge you're going through tough stuff. If you're sad, if you're depressed, that's legitimate. Those are legitimate feelings right now. And there is a good future. And find whatever resources you need within or without to encourage you to remember there are good times ahead. Yeah. So that's where I would start. That's very, very good. And I've talked to so many people throughout these podcasts and also just uh, through TikTok and other places. And you see a lot of guys getting stuck. And uh, so one last question that just popped up. You know, a lot of guys have a hard time asking for help. And uh, why do you think that is? And what was, like, I had a hard time asking for help myself going through marital difficulties. Why do you think that is? And how can we help guys asking for help? I know you're a coach yourself. And how do you help guys? And how do they reach out? Why, Why is that? So I've always been someone who does ask for help. So I'm maybe not the best person to ask, but I have some theories. And as I coach mostly men, 80% of my clients are men, most of whom are still married. And I'm encouraging them how to have the best marriage they can possible and how to live the fullest lives possible. That's my sweet spot. This guys that are still married and want to make the best out of that marriage. But I have hunches why men don't. One, they're still living in the first half of life. And in the first half of life, you're all about ego and about looking good and not showing that you're weak. And we live in a culture where it says to be a man is to be strong and not to need help. We're the one that help others. If I admit I need help, well, then I'm not a man anymore. So we have a really toxic definition of maleness there. When I like Brene Brown's definition of vulnerability, being vulnerable is actually the most courageous thing you could ever do. Yeah, I love that. Is that you are strongest by showing you have weakness. Only a a fragile man can't admit he's weak at some point. And so the people who believe that they don't have any weaknesses, they're actually the most fragile. A strong man is to say, yeah, I'm not perfect. That's just just somebody who's honest and content within themselves. So I think there's some cultural issues there. There's some ego issues there. How do I help men? Generally, I have found that people don't seek help until they've hit rock bottom. Yeah. We can't force people to get help. Unfortunately, and this is a saying that's meant a lot to me, pain is inevitable and suffering is a choice. And men who are refusing to get help or women who are refusing to get help are just prolonging the pain. They're choosing to turn that pain into suffering by making it worse, doubling down on things that never worked. And they're just keep doing the same things that don't work and they're thinking they're gonna get different results. You got to change the game. You got to change the rules. And you got to be open to there being a new game, a new rules, a new way of being. You got to be open to the fact that you can change. And for many people, that doesn't happen. And you realize the way I've been doing life is not working. 
and now I'm finally open to asking for help. Yeah. Well, that was very, very powerful statement. You know, uh, this has been so much fun to interview you. I'd love to have you on the podcast uh, in the future, uh, chatting on, on different subjects and, and uh, catching up. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you.